I'm Eric Lyson. And I'm Lara Mitra. And this is How I Got Here, a podcast that captures the twists and turns of professionals' careers and how they figured out what to do next. We are two business school students at MIT Sloan and former consultants who are looking for inspiration on how to navigate our own careers. We hope that these conversations also help you figure out what it is you want to do and how you'll get there. On this episode, we talked with Paul Sagan, currently a managing director at General Catalyst, a venture capital firm. Before getting into venture capital, Paul has had a long and varied career. He first started his career in journalism at CBS, and then after 20 years in that industry, he took a chance on an MIT startup called Akamai, which has turned out to be one of the most successful startups to ever come out of MIT. He first started as a consultant and advisor, and then later became their CEO. We talked with Paul about how he navigated his own career, but then we delved into how he helped Akamai through a crisis, in this case, 9-11. This was a particularly challenging time for Akamai because one of its co-founders, Danny Lewin, was one of the first people murdered on 9-11. We really learned a lot from Paul in this interview about how to navigate one's own career and balance work and life, and also what to do when your company faces a crisis. Before we get to the interview, Laura and I did want to mention that we recorded this conversation with Paul before the COVID-19 crisis disrupted all of our lives. Since we had this conversation, this crisis has unfolded and we talked to Paul about his advice. Paul wanted to add that his advice about changing jobs isn't meant to be implemented in the middle of a crisis. Now is the time to hunker down, take stock, and live up to the commitments you've made to others. In fact, Later on in this interview, you'll hear Paul talk about how he handled the crisis at Akamai during 9-11. And he did something really similar. He hunkered down, took stock, and lived up to the commitments that he had made. From Lara and my end, we hope that you're all staying safe and sane during these trying times. We're working hard on releasing more episodes in the coming weeks, and hopefully that can be one small way that we can be helping you. We'll be right back after the break. Hello, I'm Paul Sagan. I'm a managing director at General Catalyst. When we do research for this podcast, we typically look on LinkedIn and Google to try to piece together our interviewees' career and past roles. And doing that for you is not an easy task. You've been at a lot of different places in your career. How would you summarize your career in a few sentences? It's very eclectic been incredibly lucky to have changed careers. I think I've had at least three so far. Starting back when people didn't necessarily think about doing that, took some chances and it turned out really, really well. So I consider myself very, very lucky. I am a super generalist. I was a liberal arts person. Even with the journalism degree, most of the time was on the liberal arts side, economics, political science, etc. So I really think I'm the common sense person. I'm not the mathematician running the math company. I'm not going to check the algorithms. I'm not the computer scientist running the engineering group. I think something that generalists, um, as one myself, struggle with is pitching that skill um, in a job interview or when you're looking for a new role. Because though it sounds very important, and it is important to have someone like that in the room, it's not you know a tangible or technical skill. It's good to be king, because then you can decide that that's the thing that you (laughs) want to be. Don't know. It certainly doesn't say that on my resume. I don't list that as as a as a thing. Maybe we ought to get better at doing that. And I do think it comes back to when you're in the trenches, 
you do have to be really good at some piece of the practice, something that's being done there. So I think as people are starting their career, you pick a category, you get some domain expertise, either through classes or your first internship or first couple of jobs. And I think hope that it evolves into what appears to be, if not a superpower, a strength um, that you can use and exploit in a positive way in a company and in a job and find a, the beginning of a career that it applies to. If it's in business, it may be in finance, it may be as an analyst, it may be in corporate planning. And if your strength is really spreadsheets, um, then you better figure out how to analyze businesses that go beyond the math part of it. And that's a, that's a superpower that can be valuable. If it's in engineering, it's probably knowing how to code and, uh, and make the machines do what you need them to do. Uh, if it's in sales, the superpower is figuring out how to sell. And when you think back on your career, what was your superpower? What was the thing that you were the greatest, the best at, and did it change? I think I go back to the journalism part, which is learning to ask good inquisitive questions. And if it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. So keep asking questions. It's interesting now here as an investor, sometimes companies don't make sense. Then you meet the team, you ask, ask questions, they give you a great answer. You're like, that is a great idea, can I invest? But more often than not, you get more and more confused. And what I decided is, if it doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. And maybe I just don't get it, but I don't. I shouldn't invest there because it's probably not a good idea. And more often than not, I've been, been right. I think uh, a lot of our listeners, and Eric and I included, are looking and looking to find out what makes a good job for us and what are we driven by? Is it having a sense of purpose or meaning in the work? Is it being challenged every day? For you, what is a quote-unquote good job, and how did you come to find that for yourself? I think people should try to figure out what interests them, what problems are interesting to solve, and go to work in places that are attacking those problems, whether they're a technology company or retail or healthcare or any field. There won't be all good days. I didn't leave a place because I had a bad week. Occasionally when I would complain to my father, he would say, don't be confused. They call it work because they pay you to come there. They don't call it vacation when you pay someone else to go there. That's when it should be everything you want. But most of the time you should find it interesting and engaging. If you're not surrounded by a culture of high integrity and people who are aligned on a mission, you shouldn't stay there. If you think long term, it's not an interesting set of problems, you should probably move on. They may simply not be interesting and not be a good business, or maybe they're just not interesting to you, but either way, you probably should move on. I do like an expression of one of my mentors, George Conradis, used to say, you should stay in a job long enough to stew in your own juices. And we, what he meant was, if you don't stay long enough to implement some things and see how they come around and then have to fix it, you really haven't been accountable for what you did and you really didn't learn very much. So the changing jobs every 18 months, you haven't stewed at all. Five to 10 years in the same job, you've probably overcooked yourself. But somewhere in there is that right balance of stay long enough to learn. And then maybe you wanna do it again, but don't leave so quickly that you don't learn the lesson and you're not really accountable for all your mistakes because everybody makes lots of them. So you said you studied journalism in college, and then you go and work in media. Is, can you give us a sense of, is there a divide between creative and kind of the business side, or how did you uh, navigate that? So there is, often there's too big a divide, meaning that the journalists too often don't understand the business part or appreciate it. Now I think we're seeing often till it's too late. 
when I went to Northwestern and studied journalism, it was very much about just the journalism. Very little about the business got taught, which I think wound up being a problem later. I don't mean about compromising and selling out, just even understanding how did all that stuff get paid for that we were doing that we thought was important and was important to democracy and communities and actually to the running of the businesses. I was very lucky because my family had been in the business and I understood I loved the journalism, but we had food on the table as much because of the business part. And so I think I learned to appreciate, and maybe it helped me later, that the journalism was really important, but if the business part didn't work, you probably weren't going to get to do a lot of journalism. And so how did you split your time between doing actual journalism versus supporting the journalists in a business capacity? So it was a, an evolution starting as just a journalist. I was a reporter and a news producer and a news writer, but I think I had always had this interest in the business part of it. My wife had an MBA and actually did the finance part in the media world. She worked in corporate strategic planning at the New York Times Company when I was at CBS. So I do joke that I got my MBA by going home and having her help me. And when I first became news director at Channel 2 in New York, which was running the news department at the CBS station, and suddenly I was responsible for budgets. I didn't actually do ad sales, so somebody plugged in the revenue number. But I was suddenly responsible for the cost of hundreds of employees and making trade-offs and trying to figure out where the money was going and how we wanted to spend it and allocate it. I literally went home and said, what do I do with this spreadsheet thing? And I got some help, and then I could go back in and and do what better in the meetings and maybe make better trade-offs. So I think I was sensitized to it growing up, and then I had uh, a helper. So if we go back to when you made these jumps from either CBS to then Time Warner and then Time Warner to Akamai, you said you had a sense that this was the end and you were ready to move on to something else. Can you help us understand what, what does it mean that you knew that your time was done there and you wanted to move on something new? Here I am, 30-something years old. Do I, do I want to stay here for another 10 or 20 or 30 years? Because I can see the trajectory is changing, and that trajectory is not going in a direction that seems so interesting. And what I got to see was the industry was changing, the economics were changing, and that news was going to be less and less important, and the whole economic engine was starting to change. And that was just because of the influence of, of basic cable, not even premium cable, not even the internet, none of that had happened yet. So that's when it confirmed for me, I probably need to leave this broadcasting industry and find something else, or it's going to be more on this new trajectory that's not so good. In your career, did you have formal or structured ways of making sure you were continuing to ask yourself some of those questions and reflect on whether the job you were in was right for you, whether you had, whether it was um, every so often putting your name out there in job applications or meeting with some of these mentors you're describing? What were some of the things you did? My honest answer is it was not super structured. In my gut, I started to feel it was time to think about something different, and then it bubbled up to the point where I knew. I will say, I didn't ever put my resume out there when I was in a job. I was very lucky that I was able to know I got to the end and then stop, and then either have the resources to have a, a, a nice break or enough consulting or part-time stuff to know I could get to the other end. And what I always found, and I've told people this, if you can afford it, find a way to walk away cleanly from where you are and then look. Because the odds are when someone approaches you when you're in a job with a job, it's either the same job or something pretty closely related. But if you step away and start having conversations, 
you look at the world differently and everyone else starts to look at you differently and it leads to conversations. I never left Time Warner thinking, I'm gonna go run a math company. I went on this adventure and consulted in Europe, moved back to Boston, was working with tech companies, and then wound up finding you know, one of the most interesting startups ever to come out of MIT and convincing them I could help them for six months and then staying for almost 20 years. So my advice to people is finish what you're doing, and then if you can step out and raise your hand, it's very different than just having your resume out there because people look at you the same. Could you tell us a little bit about how you found that role? So, series of sort of maybe planned accidents. The planning part was having nothing to do with journalism or career, but my wife and I wanting our kids to have an international experience. So when I left Time Warner, we moved to Europe. It was a, we bounded that period. We wanted to go for one year and then bring our kids back before they got too old to, to get dragged around. Think back to 97, 98. You could, it was before the bubble burst and the dot-com bubble burst, you could think about just going project to project. You didn't even have to think about, I don't need a job, I just keep getting jobs. That was the craziness going on. So I thought I would consult the tech businesses. Logical places were Boston or California. And then we just made a personal decision that our lives were Chicago and East. My brother was teaching at Harvard up the street from here. So we decided we'd move to Boston and I would network with tech companies. In the first few weeks, I got introduced to the founders of Akamai, who are still research scientists at MIT. When you went to go to Europe, you and your wife wanted to have your children to have an international experience. I guess, how do you balance, when you think about this word like work-life balance, it's kind of like a, a cliche now, but it sounds like it's like this interfusion of kind of your personal ethics of what you want to have out of your life and what you owe to others. Well, and, I'm glad you've turned to that. I think it's much more important than everything we've talked about <laughs> so far. I think work-life balance is talked about too much, practiced way too little, and achievable within reason, um, understanding that there'll be periods where you work too hard and then you've got to make up for it in periods where you're more present. And I tried really hard to accomplish that. My kids and my wife tell me I did, so they're my reference and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And to me, that's an accomplishment much more important than any of the business things I did. You'll probably have a lot of jobs in your life I hope you have one great family experience. Often people, I think, make the wrong trade. And so I've tried to be very conscious of never trading my family off. Doesn't mean that I didn't work long hours sometimes and, and, and do some you know, crazy duties, but it was very important to me to always be centered on my family, always be conscious of the how much time I'm there or not. And when you're there to be super present, which now with Smartphones is even harder than, than when our kids were little. And I also knew it was on me to make sure the balance worked. It was not on them. So I would always try to get home for dinner if I wasn't traveling. And then it was on me to stay up as late as I needed to after they all went to bed to finish whatever work I needed to do. And if we go back to when you started at Akamai, you said you were gonna consult for them for six months and then ended up staying for 20 years. What did that evolution look like from, I think we saw in your LinkedIn that you were maybe COO, um, but maybe you could help us understand how you went from consulting, understanding actually, hey, I actually want to stick around here longer, to then becoming CEO. I sort of evolved the titles and the role and got caught up in it. And COO led to president, led to CEO, and it took 15 years to untangle being there every day. I thought I would stay there for six months, and 15 years later, I left my operating role there as CEO, and 
five more years, so 20 years in, I finally stepped off the board. So you should be careful as you, you know, take jobs and assignments. One that you think may last a long time may end quickly, and those that you think may be short-lived could go on for decades. Can you explain Akamai to someone back when it when you were working there? If you were to explain it to someone that was not technical and didn't really understand how the internet worked, what did Akamai do? So this was an MIT um, project with DARPA funding. We made the internet faster, more reliable, and safer. So if you were a consumer, you didn't buy from Akamai, but most of the sites that you probably went to used us to make their site faster. You want the internet to happen quickly, not slow down or crash when lots of other people wanted to get to the same thing and made it more secure from hackers. So that was the business value I would use as the lay example. If they said, well, how do you do that? I'd say, well, the internet is a network of computers, which means there are servers, which is a fancy name for computers, and just like the one you might have on your desktop. They sit in data centers that connect to the internet through wires, and they use a bunch of protocols that allow them to exchange data between them. Akamai is more software that sits figuratively a layer above and kind of is the traffic cop. And you didn't need to understand the code or their algorithms, just think of it as this sort of uh, air traffic control for the internet that made everybody happier on both ends. And what do you think is responsible for you staying for that long, intending to stay six months and then staying 15 and beyond? There were two major themes. One was the business was just so interesting and the company became so central to the evolution and, and the life of the, of the internet on a worldwide basis that didn't think there would be many more interesting places to work if you wanted to do things that were just so connected. And um, we went from no revenue to today it's a $3 billion revenue business. So a fascinating place to be involved. So I, I stayed for the excitement and the, the challenge on the one hand, and then there's the tragedy side of the Akamai story. So one of the two co-founders, the original two people who invented the business, who had hired me, uh, Danny Lewin, um, who was the chief scientist of the company, was the first person who was murdered on 9-11. When you look at that in the the history it happened in, first we had the dot-com bubble burst, and people said, your company, you'll go out of business. Then they said, oh, well, the, the inspiration of the company's been killed, so you're sure to go out of business. And so those of us who were there were just damn angry. It's an indescribably horrible thing. Um, I think it spoke a lot to the importance of building culture in a company and aligning people. And Danny had a big vision and had a huge impact on the culture. And so we knew what it was. And we said to the people we could keep, that we could afford to keep after the downturn in 9-11 when we were trying to not go bankrupt. And if you stay, this is the mission. And we're all angry, but really clear-eyed about what we're gonna do. And if you wanna stay, you can be part of winning. And that was a really important lesson. And we'd, we'd all learned a lot from Danny. He was just a tremendous leader. He had learned it in the military and he translated it to business and we all took it and ran with it in a way I would hope he would be proud of. How did you think about, you know, taking care of the business but also your your own well-being and, and your employees' well-beings? So first, I talked to a lot of founders and companies about managing through adversity and ambiguity and I think most companies that succeed go through periods of that in different forms. The 9-11 experience is about as bad a version of that as you can go through. So our reaction and how we handled it, we kind of made up as we went. 
which is why I come back to I think culture is so important because I think we had a culture of collaboration, honesty, and hard work that allowed us to get through something as traumatic as that. On 9-11, the internet really rose to its prominence as the most important communication medium for people. In some places, the only way they could get information because their phone lines didn't work again. It was the realization of Danny's vision. It was just ironic, horribly ironic how it happened. So we threw ourselves into the work. We had all these sites that were either news sites that were struggling to stay up or people who were prospects who hadn't decided yet calling and saying, we don't care what it costs. Just Could you just integrate us onto the Akamai network to the FBI that was getting terrorist tips over more over the Internet than over their phone lines, and their site didn't work. So we all just threw ourselves into the work because the first thing is we knew Danny would have done that and expected us to. He would have said, customers first, go do that. Figure out your own problem later. There was actually a lot of angst in the office. A number of employees were like, we should go home as a memorial, right? And looked at him and said, are you crazy? Danny would just, he'd be so angry at you. Of course you don't go home now. You do the work. And they're like, oh, yeah, right, of course, of course. We, we, we need to fulfill the mission and satisfy the customers. So there was that was the first easy answer, just work really hard. And that was a distraction, too, from a lot of the emotion. We, um, we tried to figure out how to meet employees where they were emotionally. Some people were emotional immediately. Some were emotional days later. So we got counselors, we had places to deal with grief, we got outside experts to try to advise us. We had a company-wide memorial for Danny um, two weeks later, I think, I can't, it's a blur, but somewhere in there and the whole company came together and his parents came over uh, as well. Um, and we just dealt with it sort of one step at a time. There are parts of it that, I mean, I think about them every day, it never goes away this sort of closure. I don't buy that expression. I don't think you get closure on these kinds of traumas. I think you learn to deal with them, try to get stronger from them and, and manage the, the pain. And that took a long, long time to get to an, a place that, that it wasn't a sort of oppressive cloud following you around all the time. But we got there and built a great company in many ways just out of respect for, for Danny. In the short term, we tried to over-communicate. We tried to talk to employees. We tried to talk to the board customer, stock market, um, investors to keep things going. I will say, because Danny was known by so many of our customers in the industry, we got a tremendous outpouring of support from customers and people. And I think they wanted us to make it, and that helped a lot. So we stayed, and one thing led to another, and six months turned into 15 years. Ever since I stepped down and the company is, you know, has a market cap of somewhere between 15 and 20 billion dollars and 3 billion in revenue and 8 or 9,000 employees and it's going strong in its third decade. So I couldn't be happier about all that, but I would give up all the success that we had at the company, every good part of it for to get the one day back, but we you know you can't do that. We want to thank Paul again for sharing his story with us and with you. This was a particularly emotional and personal story, and Laura and I find that's when we learn some of the most about what we want to do with our lives. And now we'll turn to what some of our main takeaways were from our conversation with Paul. I really liked Paul's advice about staying at a company long enough to stew in your own juices. I think we often think about our career in one to two year increments, which is fairly short, but Paul advocates for staying long enough to see 
the effects of the decisions you made, the new project you implemented, instead of moving on to something else more quickly. What struck me about that is although we usually think about our careers as decisions we can typically make about how long we want to stay at a job, you know, things happen, layoffs, firings, and, you know, global crises happen that can change what you think you want to do and what you're able to do. And so Paul really reminded me that sometimes you're going to make a career decision, not just based on what you wanted, you know, from five or a year ago or a couple of days before. And so after the challenge of 9-11, he felt compelled to stay to honor his colleague and friend and support the company, which is, you know, not something he had thought he would do. He was going to stay there for six months and here he is 15, 20 years later. So I think it's important to understand that over a 30 year career, there's going to be these types of events, like one of the ones we're living through now, which is this virus situation that are going to impact what you're able to do and what you want to do and what's going to inspire you to be to have a meaningful job. You can find more episodes of how I got here, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this episode, please consider sharing. It really helps. Do you know the perfect person for us to interview next? Or do you want to be on the podcast yourself? Check out our website at howigotherepodcast.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon.